HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome to the Big Food Question, a podcast exploring the most urgent questions from a food industry in crisis. I'm Zoe Gruskin, and today we're asking, why should I care about bird flu? And if you're wondering what that has to do with food, then this episode is especially for you. This spring, as the United States entered its third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, another viral illness began spreading across the country. But the victims of this disease weren't humans, they were birds. Highly pathogenic avian influenza, or bird flu for short, is mainly spread by wild birds, especially ducks, which can carry the infection asymptomatically. But when the virus hops over to domestic poultry, it's a whole different story. Birds raised for food in the U.S., like chickens and turkeys, are very vulnerable to the disease. If they become infected, they almost always die or become severely sick. While humans are very, very unlikely to catch bird flu, an outbreak can be devastating to the poultry industry and to the people it supports. This year has been one of the worst on record for bird flu. More than 40 million birds across the country have died. That's mostly been preventative culling. If the virus is found in a flock, every bird is killed. Whatever products those birds might have produced, whether eggs or meat, are destroyed. They're not sent to market. Those losses, of course, get passed on to consumers as higher prices. The economic risk of bird flu is one reason to pay attention and maybe to rethink how our poultry is produced. It turns out the large-scale, industrialized operations that produce most of our eggs and poultry are especially vulnerable to disease. But, as we'll hear today, taking seriously the threat of bird flu could have benefits that extend far beyond preventing disease. Changing how poultry is farmed could also improve environmental protection, animal welfare, and even, perhaps, taste. To unpack these possibilities and the perils of bird flu on the ground, I spoke to a poultry farmer in the heart of the country whose hope for the future of the industry has a lot to do with history. My name is Frank Reese. I'm in Lindsborg, Kansas. I'm a poultry farmer and have been all my life. Frank is at least a fourth-generation farmer, although he suspects that heritage goes much further back. He found his particular calling at a young age. As one of the younger kids in the family, I was put in charge of the poultry. 
And so at a young age, I, I had the responsibility of taking care of them and soon began to really love working with them. Frank, now 73, has never stopped. He still raises chickens, ducks, and lots of turkeys. He hatches over 10,000 turkeys a year on his farmstead, the Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. And full disclosure, Frank's poultry is distributed by Heritage Foods, which is HRN's founding supporter. Frank keeps close watch on bird flu each year. He has to. If the virus were to reach his flocks, it would be a disaster. The bird flu in circulation this year was first detected on Canada's eastern coast in December 2021 but it quickly spread across the continent as wild birds migrated. And it hit everybody eventually throughout all of the country. I mean, 30 miles down the road from me, a very large industrial turkey breeder farm got hit. Remember, the virus is mainly spread by wild birds, so 30 miles isn't much at all as the crow, or rather duck, flies. What do you do with danger nearly at your door? You have to lock things up and then pray. As much as he could, Frank shut down movement in and out of his farm. I didn't allow anybody to come and visit my farm or remove anything from my farm. And if people did come, if they did have to come, or even if it was a feed truck coming, I made them wash the feed truck, wash the tires. They came in, they unloaded the feed, and then they left here, and then they went and washed. You know, we tried to do whatever we could. It's a burden to take those extra steps, but Frank has avoided an outbreak in his flocks. That's a relief for him, and not only because he relies on their sale for income. See, Frank's birds are special. They're not the birds you'd get in a fast food chicken sandwich or what you can find at most supermarkets. The type of poultry that people eat today is very new. Some of these types of turkeys and chickens people buy at grocery stores have only been in existence for, at the most, 40 years. So, you know, the modern industrial chicken and turkey of today is a totally different creature. Frank's birds are something else entirely. He exclusively raises heritage breeds, what he calls standard bread. He says that's the proper name. Humans have been directing the evolution of animals for at least as long as they've kept livestock. But modern commercial birds are the product of much more recent tinkering. Through very precise, lab-based genetic engineering, today's birds are designed to grow quickly and exactly the same. Every bird coming down the assembly line must look exactly like the chicken right behind it. Frank's birds, on the other hand, are a variety of breeds, shaped by generations of farmers to cultivate different characteristics. They are different colors and grow at different rates. Some are better egg layers, others are better for meat. But they all have one thing in common that most commercial birds do not. They are still capable of walking, flying, foraging. The goal of industrial poultry farmers is simple, to get birds to market as fast as possible. These birds reach slaughter weight in as little as 42 days. They grow so heavy, so quickly, that many would struggle to walk. Most commercial turkeys are so physically altered that they can't reproduce naturally and must be artificially inseminated. People now think those Three and a half, four, four and a half pound chickens they're buying at the grocery store is normal. But what you're buying is a six week old bird that is double its weight. That rapid growth has consequences. All modern industrial rapid growing chickens suffer from multiple diseases that are direct results of obesity, like congestive heart failure, necrotic enteritis, diabetes, Crohn's disease 
they all have those problems. Which makes the birds particularly vulnerable to infectious disease, including bird flu. The United States Department of Agriculture takes an aggressive approach to containing the virus. If bird flu is detected in a commercial bird, the entire flock is euthanized, sometimes hundreds of thousands or even millions of birds at a time. That certainly hurts producers, although they are partially compensated by the U.S. government for those losses. But when Frank worries about bird flu reaching his farm, he's worried about more than his bottom line. I explained a minute ago that Frank's birds are different. They're also incredibly rare. For example, his standard bronze turkeys. My line of turkeys I have here, the bronze and so on, this is the last of them on Earth. If they were to get the bird flu and die, there's no way I can replace them. They're gone forever. What do we lose when we lose a breed? History, for one thing. Frank can trace the exact lineage of his bronze turkeys back over a hundred years, who had them and where they were raised. And the breed itself dates back to the arrival of Europeans in the American colonies, when domestic turkeys brought along were crossed with wild turkeys in the Northeast. Losing breeds also means losing choice for consumers, cooks, and eaters. Historically, different breeds of birds were favored for different dishes. At one time, you could go to your meat market in New York or wherever, and you could buy a New Ham or a Bard Rock or a Lager Rooster. You know, there was all these different varieties and for different culinary reasons. That's all gone. Today, if you're buying poultry, you can make choices based on how the bird was raised. Is it organic? Is it free-ranged? Was it vegetable-fed? You know, but it's all the same out. It's disappointing to know our culinary options have diminished. But Frank says it's also dangerous. Mother Nature hates the monoculture. Genetic diversity, in Frank's eyes, is key to the long-term survival of poultry species. Because as we confront new conditions like changing climate or infectious diseases like bird flu, some types of birds might be more fit to survive while others perish. That's the fundamental law of evolution. But if every single bird is exactly the same, they are all equally vulnerable. The wrong circumstances could wipe them all out. That's why Frank says his mission isn't to shut down factory farming. He says he actually learns a lot from the work of modern poultry scientists. But he's thinking about the long game. My whole purpose of doing what I'm doing is to save genetic diversity. That somewhere down the road, these old genetics that I have, that have existed here on the Kansas prairie for over 100 years, and have proved themselves through generations. Someday, we may need those genes. We may need those genetics to save our food industry. And if a disease like bird flu wipes out Frank's flocks, we won't have them. Coming up after a short break, I talk to an expert in both human and animal health to get a big-picture look at bird flu and the food industry. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. 
Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to The Big Food Question, where today we're asking, why should I care about bird flu? After hearing Frank's boots-on-the-ground perspective, I wanted the bird's-eye view. So I called Gail Hansen. Gail is a consultant on human and animal health who has worked in the nonprofit world as well as for state and local governments. She served for 12 years as both the state public health veterinarian and the state epidemiologist of Kansas. She keeps a close watch on the poultry industry, and she's troubled by what she sees. The system is set up to make the birds behave as if they were widgets more than having the system designed around the birds. The birds are designed around the system. Massive barns filled with tens or even hundreds of thousands of birds are typical in the industry. There are animal welfare concerns, and like Frank noted, in those conditions, it is easy for a disease to sweep through. In fact, says Gail. If you wanted to design a system that would cause disease to be spread fast, you couldn't design a better system. I mean, you have lots of birds closely packed together that they're reason for being is to get them to produce as fast as possible, and the rest of it has become secondary. So you've got a perfect storm to get disease, to get into a a flock and, and cause havoc. Again, that lack of genetic diversity and general unhealthiness makes the flock as a whole vulnerable. But Gail points out, to a certain extent, it doesn't actually matter how quickly bird flu could spread through a commercial flock, because if the virus is detected at all, every single bird will be killed. And by the way, the method that many farmers use to kill those flocks is a practice called ventilation shutdown, which many veterinarians, including Gail, have criticized as unnecessarily cruel. Close up all the doors and windows. Often they'll add heat, sometimes steam to the, to the barns, and the animals cook basically, you know, having heat stroke. It's too soon to know exactly what this year's loss of 40 million birds has cost farmers financially. But for comparison, the 2014-2015 outbreak, considered the worst in U.S. history, killed about 50 million birds, and it cost the poultry industry $3 billion. This year, bird flu pushed the price of eggs even higher, already up from inflation and supply chain issues. Between March and April, the average price of a dozen eggs more than doubled. So as a consumer, the economic impact, which can show up as higher prices, is one reason to care about bird flu. But Gail also has another concern, human health. Let's be clear, the bird flu in circulation is, right now, extremely unlikely to infect humans. 
Only one human case has been reported in the U.S. this year, a poultry worker in Colorado who had mild symptoms and recovered quickly. Currently, direct person-to-person transmission of bird flu is impossible, and you also can't get it from eating eggs or meat of any kind. So why is Gail keeping such close tabs on the virus? Avian influenza and human influenza are not that different, and viruses mutate constantly. So it would not be hard for a virus that's been infecting birds to change itself just a little bit, mutate just a little bit so it can infect a human. And if it goes from person to person, that's how you end up with a pandemic or an epidemic. A number of government agencies, including the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Centers for Disease Control, are closely tracking the virus and any mutations. Again, the risk to humans is currently low. But the bird flu in circulation this year has spread to and apparently sickened other kinds of animals, including mammals. In July, a number of seals found dead in Maine tested positive for the virus. Thinking about mutations brings us back to those closely packed barns of industrial poultry farming. And every time the virus is in contact with another animal, another bird, it has a chance to mutate. And if you've got 10,000, 20,000 birds in one small area, there's a lot of chances for a lot of mutations. For Gail, bird flu is a perfect illustration of the importance of looking at human, animal, and environmental health holistically. So instead of just saying, well, I don't have to worry about it because I just, I'm just i a physician, so I deal with people, I don't have to worry about what's going on with the animals. Or a veterinarian saying, I deal with the animals, you know, what I do with the animals doesn't affect people. Or an, an environmental health person, whether they're an ecologist or plant pathologist saying, you know, what I do doesn't, doesn't impact people. Well, we, you know, we, we live in a, an interconnected earth, right? And we can't just look at things by itself. We have to look at it in a bigger context. Although it's underscored by worst case scenarios, this perspective is actually a hopeful one because it suggests some directions to go in, changes we could make to reduce the risk of bird flu, making the leap to humans, and improve animal and environmental health while we're at it. Gail's first suggestion echoes Frank. Certainly biodiversity helps because if all the animals are exactly the same, if all the birds are exactly the same, that virus is going to spread through like crazy. If there's some diversity, there'll always be some animals that are are a little bit more resistant. Next, she says, is to look at how birds are being raised. Consider, for example, backyard flocks. They're not immune to bird flu. They can certainly get it, but there are going to be fewer chances for that virus to, to mutate because there's just fewer of them, and they're not packed closely together, so you're not stressing the animals as much. The same is true for smaller-scale commercial operations like Frank's, where animals can move freely and spend time outside. Gail encourages people to ask where their poultry is coming from, and then she hopes they might ask a bigger question. Is our current system the one we want? In just the last few decades, animal farming in the United States has been hugely transformed. Large-scale operations that prioritize efficiency above all else have been directly and indirectly incentivized by government policy. Gail says that anyone who has concerns about the current system, whether it's animal welfare, diseases like bird flu, or something else, should ask their elected officials to take another look. Is this the best way to be raising animals for food? It certainly is cost-effective for some in the short term, but What are the long-term effects, and are there better ways for the animals, for people, for the planet, to be raising animals differently? 
So far this year, bird flu has followed the typical pattern of dropping off in the warmer months, although outbreaks are still being detected. And the conditions that make commercial flocks particularly vulnerable to disease are unchanged. Bird flu gives us a reason to ask, is this how we want to raise poultry? And it's an opportunity now to imagine new futures. Don't forget to subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Check back often as we address critical questions for eaters, operators, and workers across food topics and business sectors. If you have questions you'd like the show to answer, email us at question at heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks for this episode to Frank Reese and Gail Hansen. The Big Food Question is produced by Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and Matt Patterson. This episode was reported and produced by me, Zoe Gruskin. Our audio engineer is Liam Werner. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Food Question is powered by Simplecast. The content of this series is provided for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. You should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this content. This program is also supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. The Big Food Question is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.